Newly released court documents show Fox News stars and executives knew they were pushing lies about fraud in the 2020 presidential election. It's Friday, February 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other Republican lawmakers are on a tour of the southern border calling for tighter immigration rules. Also, they're in our food and our water and in our air and they get on our skin. These chemicals are in all of us and they're everywhere. In our series on the toxic chemicals known as PFAS, advice on how to avoid them. And this hour, second gentleman Doug Emhoff talks about his fight against anti-Semitism. This is not partisan. There's no two sides to hate. There's no two sides to anti-Semitism. There's no two sides to denying the fact that the Holocaust happened. Bruins win in Nashville. Showers off and on throughout the day in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A court in Georgia has released parts of a special grand jury report. Members investigated efforts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. The special grand jury said that their investigation found no evidence of widespread fraud that could result in overturning the election. Trump had railed at Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, telling him to find more votes. Raffensperger refused. He now says the special grand jury's report vindicates his team. When you give people the facts, you know, you can just see that their goodness shines through. We leaned into the Constitution. We leaned into the rule of law. And I just did my job. The special grand jury also said there's evidence some witnesses lied to them under oath. The panel is recommending that prosecutors file charges. New legal filings show the sense of crisis that pervaded Fox News Channel after then-President Donald Trump lost re-election in 2020. As NPR's David Falkenflik reports, Fox News stars knew Trump's claims of election fraud were bogus, but also feared their audiences would abandon the network. The revelations came in a legal filing by Dominion Voting Systems, which has sued Fox News for $1.6 billion for defamation. Fox executives and stars, including Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram, called the conspiracies whipped up by Trump's allies mind-blowingly nuts, totally off the rails, and even worse, in private texts and emails. They also denounced Fox News journalists who dealt straight with Fox viewers, from Fox's projection of Joe Biden's win in Arizona to everything that followed. Executives angrily said it was more important to protect Fox's brand. A Fox News spokeswoman says the filing cherry-picked exchanges and presented them out of context. The trial is set to begin in April. David Folkenflik, NPR News. EPA Administrator Michael Regan visited East Palestine, Ohio yesterday following this month's fiery train derailment. Julie Grant of the Allegheny Front reports local residents are very worried about the toxic chemicals and poisonous fume that leached out of the cars. Regan said officials have tested the air in nearly 500 homes in East Palestine and they have not found any hazardous chemicals related to the incident. Many residents are concerned about the strong smells and some have reported rashes and other health issues. Asked if he would allow his own children to return if they live there, he said. If those homes have been tested and given a clean bill of health, yes, as a father, I trust the science, I trust the methodology that this state is using, and as a parent, I would. Regan encouraged people to contact the EPA to get their home air and water wells tested, and in the meantime to use bottled water. He said the EPA will hold Norfolk Southern responsible for cleanup and costs from the incident. For NPR News, I'm Julie Grant in Kent, Ohio. You're listening to NPR. 
A committee in China's ceremonial parliament has rebuked American lawmakers for passing resolutions condemning a Chinese spy balloon. The Senate resolutions say the spy balloon violated U.S. airspace. The Chinese committee says the U.S. in turn is trampling the sovereignty of other nations. A high-profile executive in Silicon Valley is resigning. Susan Wojcicki has led Google's YouTube video service for nine years. NPR's Bobby Allen reports Wojcicki says she's leaving for personal reasons. Susan Wojcicki's Google story starts with a garage. In the late 90s, she rented out her small, messy Menlo Park garage to Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They toiled away trying to launch a tech company. Google. She relied on those deep roots when she joined the company and in 2014 was named CEO of YouTube, taking the helm of one of the most recognizable names in the online world. She worked to grow revenue at the service and made a play at the TV advertising market. She also led the company through the Trump years, when YouTube became home to violent extremism and misinformation, leading to boycott campaigns by civil rights groups. She will pass the reins to her longtime deputy, Neil Mohan. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Los Angeles police say they have arrested a suspect in connection with two shootings this week of two people outside local synagogues. Local media say they are, they are in stable condition. The shootings are now being investigated as hate crimes. The suspect is said to be an Asian male. The Los Angeles police say they are increasing patrols around Jewish places of worship and surrounding neighborhoods. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Healy administration is out with a new grant program to help make low- and moderate-income houses more climate-friendly. The $50 million in funding can be used to swap out fossil heating systems for electric heat pumps, improving energy efficiency, and even adding rooftop solar panels. More now from WBOR's Miriam Wasser. Getting a home off of fossil fuels and making it more energy efficient is expensive. The new fund tries to make it attainable for those who can least afford to do it. Kerry Bowie is the president of the environmental nonprofit Browning the Green Space. He says that while $50 million won't cover everyone who needs it, it's a good start. And hopefully it can be a seed and people understand how it works and then go, okay, let's pour a little bit more you know, gasoline on this, on this fire in a sense and let's make this thing bigger. The state will begin accepting applications for the fund in June and could begin awarding grants later this summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Some restaurant owners in Boston's North End are once again upset with the city's outdoor dining regulations. Rules laid out by Mayor Michelle Wu's office last night allow restaurants to set up tables on sidewalks and in parking spaces beginning in May. They first have to submit plans and pay a fee. But in the North End, restaurants will only be allowed to set up on sidewalks, and those sidewalks have to be a certain width. Boston Public Schools is negotiating a new agreement with the city's police force. The mayor's office says the plan will not involve putting officers in schools. Instead, the Boston Globe reports it will formalize a relationship between the two entities. It would also clarify when teachers and staff should call police. Officers have not been stationed in schools since the summer of 2021, but several violent incidents at and near the city's schools has renewed a push for their return. 
Senator Elizabeth Warren is asking five of the country's top egg producers to explain a recent spike in egg prices. Yesterday's market indicates egg prices are dipping, but in December, prices were up 60 percent compared to the year prior. Many producers say an outbreak of avian flu resulted in lower egg production. Some critics say the price increase far outweighs the financial impacts caused by the outbreak. It's 7.08. WBUR supporters include BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. The Bruins shut out the Predators 5-0 last night in Nashville. The Bees will host the New York Islanders tomorrow. Showers off and on throughout the day today. There could be uh, even a rumble of thunder. Temperatures will get into the upper 50s, mostly cloudy and dry overnight. Temperatures will fall down to the 20s. Sunny and cooler tomorrow. It'll be around 40, partly sunny on Sunday and in the upper 40s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston at 7.09. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldil. For the first time as House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy led a group of Republican freshman lawmakers on a trip to the southern border in Arizona. McCarthy talked to reporters at a private ranch next to a border wall and praised his conference for tackling an issue he claims the Biden administration has not been doing enough on. The freshman member that I brought here They have done more in four weeks of looking at the border than the president has done in 40 years. Of course, Democrats dispute that claim. But with Republicans now in control of the House, McCarthy is trying to make good on campaign promises about the border. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us from Arizona. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning, Layla. So tell us, what area of the border did you visit and what was the purpose of this trip for these lawmakers? Right. We navigated here by GPS coordinates, so there was no traditional street address. It was remote, but it was surrounded by beautiful vistas and mountains. This was in Cochise County in Arizona. And this group of lawmakers visited the Tucson region for a briefing, followed by an aerial tour from U.S. Customs and Border Protection Afterwards, they held a press conference at a private ranch where McCarthy said that the Republican-led House would tackle improvements to border security. Republicans have been taking action. We've got a lot of ideas inside Congress. But it's different than the Congress before. We're just not going to write the bill and put it onto the floor. We're going to listen to the people that are on the border. We're going to listen to border agents. But we should note they do not have much of a legislative path forward. They only control the House one chamber. Unless they decide to work with Democrats, they're not going to see a lot of progress on those plans. Now, McCarthy was joined by an all-freshman delegation. Why is that notable? What's the thinking there? Yes, a senior GOP aide told me this freshman group showcases the next generation of lawmakers who could take the lead on these issues, like Arizona's Juan Siscomani. You might remember him as the freshman who offered the Spanish language rebuttal to President Biden's recent State of the Union address. Right. At the press conference, he listed the different groups they heard from during the visit, specifically on the issue of fentanyl coming over the border. We just sat in the round table that we heard from mayors, from elected officials on the county side, from law enforcement, from border patrol, from sheriffs, from ranchers, private sector, business owners, and they all have the same feeling about this. It's a crisis that is impacting everyone in different ways. 
But we should note that the abundance of fentanyl in the U.S. is something that both Democrats and Republicans name as a major concern. Some argue Republicans have tried to pin the blame on migrants who are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border to seek asylum. But we've learned that is largely not the case. So how are Republicans challenging the Biden administration on this issue? What are they doing? Well, McCarthy did not lay out a very prescriptive legislative agenda on this issue. He says it is early days, but has pledged to bring members from Washington out to border areas to hold hearings. He told reporters that he wants to talk to Americans where they are, and it has already started. For example, the House Judiciary Committee will be holding a hearing next week in Yuma, Arizona, about 200 miles west of here, and they'll also have a visit to the border as well. McCarthy says there's much more of this to come. As for Democrats, they're not planning to take part in these field hearings so far or these visits. They argue that these are just largely photo ops. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you so much. Thank you. I want to rewind now back to November 2020, election night. Millions of people were watching Fox News when it became the first major network to project Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, had won the key state of Arizona in the presidential race. It was the right call, but it threw the network into a crisis. We're learning vivid new details now about how that crisis played out thanks to legal filings in a blockbuster defamation lawsuit against Fox. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik joins us in. Good morning, David. Good morning, Asma. So why was Fox News thrown into a panic simply because its journalists correctly called a state that Biden had indeed won? Well, this isn't about journalistic values at Fox. It's about brand identity. And you don't have to take my word for it. That's what executives, including the chief executive at Fox News, said to one another Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. Fox viewers, loyal Trump voters, started bleeding to smaller rival Newsmax. So within days of Election Day, you saw Fox stars beginning to air and seemingly embrace at times conspiracy theories without solid evidence, including that this vote tech company, Dominion Voting Systems, switched Trump votes to Biden. We now know this was incredible hypocrisy behind the scenes. The Fox stars and execs were trashing the idea of these allegations and broadcasting them anyway. Okay, so David, give us an example of what Fox's viewers were encountering. Let's take a listen. Uh, Take Fox News' Maria Bartiromo, what she said on November 29th, 2020, to then-President Trump after he alleged on her show that the Dominion machines were engineered to commit fraud against him. This election was a fraud. It was a rigged election. This is disgusting, and we cannot allow America's election to be corrupted. So under oath, Bartiromo conceded to Dominion's lawyers the claims Trump and his camp were relying on lacked any credibility. She called them kooky later on. Fox News repeatedly hosted this Trump ally, an attorney named Sidney Powell, who made wild claims. Tucker Carlson pretty effectively showed she had no proof in his interview of her, but many of his colleagues presented her as a serious figure, even while trashing her in private text to one another. Sean Hannity had her on his show. Privately, he called her and her assertions outlandish. Mm. Another Mm -hmm. corporate official at Fox Corp called it mind-blowingly nuts. So, David, this gets to how we know all of this, because Dominion has been making these claims for, what, about two years now. Uh, What makes these new details notable? Well, Dominion lays all of this out in a filing yesterday with all kinds of new evidence they've gained in this process called discovery. And the cynicism and the fear inside Fox News, Fox News is presented in technicolor. You would you have these executives and star hosts who are privately clear-eyed. There's no evidence Dominion committed fraud, none. Yet mm-hmm. they're angry, 
not at the dominion, excuse me, not at the claims, but that at their newsroom colleagues, journalists who say that there's no credence to these allegations on the air to Fox viewers and in public. Many of those viewers don't want to hear it. So you had one Fox News reporter accurately fact checking claims of fraud that appeared on Fox's air in a tweet. Tucker Carlson privately called for her to be fired and she pulled the tweet down. Oh, wow. In another instance, Fox's CEO privately denounced a top Washington editor for Fox for failing to protect the station's brand. So how is Fox responding to all of this? What is it saying? They're saying a few big things. They're saying Dominion's trying to punish it for covering the news for allegations put forth by the then sitting president. They say Dominion is cherry picking these messages. They say it's trying to chill speech so that people don't cover things they don't want it covered. And they say Dominion didn't really suffer the harm it claims and certainly doesn't deserve $1.6 billion it's seeking in the suit. Very briefly, David, what happens next? So there's a trial set for April, and generally defamation cases are hard to win. This is an unusually evidence-rich record that Dominion's been presenting in these filings. But so as a result, a number of media lawyers I've talked to really do expect a settlement. That's if Dominion is willing to take the money and if, and this is a real question, they can wrangle some kind of apology out of Mm -hmm. Fox News, which the network has so far been unwilling to give. NPR's David Folkenflik, thank you as always for your reporting. You bet. Federal regulators say Tesla software was breaking traffic laws in dangerous ways. So the company is rolling out a fix to its full self-driving feature in a recall that was announced yesterday. This software is controversial. And in fact, depending on where you watched the Super Bowl, you might have seen an ad showing a Tesla that was mowing down child-sized mannequins. Tesla's full self-driving is endangering the public with deceptive marketing and woefully inept engineering. 90% agree that this should be banned immediately. Why does NHTSA allow Tesla full self-driving? Now, NHTSA is the federal highway safety regulator. NPR's Camila Domanowski joins us to talk about this recall. Good morning, Camila. Good morning. So what does this recall mean for Tesla owners? Well, it'll only affect people who have full self-driving, which is an expensive option, but about more than 360,000 people do have this software. And they'll be getting a software update over the air, so they don't have to go anywhere, that's going to change how full self-driving behaves. So just to be clear, these cars are still driving on the road, they can still use full self-driving, but in the coming weeks, the program is going to be tweaked. Okay, so what was wrong with the software? Well, federal regulators say that after, in part, driving around on vehicles that had full self-driving enabled, they zeroed in on four particular things that it was doing. One was in turn-only lanes going straight through an intersection. Mm -hmm. Another was not responding properly when the speed limit changed in areas where the speed limit can change. Stop signs, sometimes the software was not coming to a full stop before the stop sign. And the last was running yellow lights in an unsafe way. Tesla didn't agree with regulators' analysis, but did agree to push out a software fix. Like I said, that'll be coming out soon. Okay, the software that's being updated, full self-driving, if you could talk about what it is exactly, and with this Mm -hmm. fix, is it safe? Yeah, you know, I think this fix doesn't address the underlying dispute over the safety of full self-driving. I mean, if you ask Elon Musk, this is both 
a safety feature that is safer than a human driver and absolutely essential to the future of Tesla as a company. If you talk to a lot of safety experts, they would say this is a dangerous experiment that's being played out on public roads. That's mm. the underlying concern. Either way, it's unique to Tesla, right? Full mm. self-driving is a, a misleading name because a person behind the wheel still has to supervise what the vehicle is doing. That's critically important. But the software will steer and accelerate and break not just on highways but on city streets with pedestrians and bikers and stoplights the whole shebang sometimes it behaves really impressively sometimes it makes mistakes which is why it doesn't always happen but people are supposed to keep an eye on what their car is doing so they can mm -hmm. take over the other thing is it's technically still in beta it's getting constant updates but in the meantime being used by hundreds of thousands of drivers Okay, what's the future for full self-driving? Well, this isn't the end to the conversation. There's more scrutiny from regulators. There are also some lawsuits about this and related tech that are going to be unfolding in the months ahead. NPR's Camilla Domanowski. Thank you so much, Camilla. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up in the wake of the Michigan State shootings, efforts to make campuses safer. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again. ICABoston.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, I don't know about you, but I need funny to help me get through hard times. And it's been an unfunny week, from toxic spills to spies in the skies. And let's be honest, it's been unfunny for a while. Our two resident comedians help us figure out how to grapple with what's real and still find a way to laugh. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy and windy with a high near 60 today. There's a good chance of showers after about 11 a.m. Tonight, more showers possible in the early evening, then mostly cloudy with a low around 22. It'll still be pretty windy. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 40, mostly cloudy and a high near 48 on Sunday. Right now, it's 40, 51 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting the big-screen return of Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon in a 4K restoration, starring Michelle Yao and Chow Yun-Fat, now playing in theaters. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Asma Khalid. 72. That's the number of mass shootings in the U.S. since just the start of this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. And for a lot of survivors, every new incident brings new pain. When events happen, for example, in the month of December, I think about how the holiday season will be forever different for those families. 
and uh, and the same for you know Valentine's Day and, and things like that. Christina Anderson Froling was shot three times at Virginia Tech in 2007. She used donations sent to her family to start the Koshka Foundation. It's a nonprofit dedicated to helping prevent mass shootings and improving campus security. Our colleague A. Martinez spoke with her. Christina, President Biden has said that gun reform is a priority for his administration, but with a divided Congress, change will likely be slow if it ever even occurs. What should schools be doing to try to prevent school shootings from happening? School safety is really a multi-layer response. A lot of times after these shootings, we focus on the physical security aspects, which are incredibly important, right? We want to think about how we are letting folks into our spaces, what type of visitor management policies we have in place so that a disgruntled employee or a parent that shouldn't be there or whoever else cannot just walk into a space. And that's obviously difficult in, in open campuses and things like that. But one of the big changes in our country that was really uh, inspired and launched by our shooting in 2007 was this recommendation that we should create threat assessment teams within our schools, which work collaboratively. They would have folks from mental health, education, the principal, law enforcement come together and really try to be able to hopefully identify some of these threats before they become violent and put plans in place to, to manage that behavior and really ideally keep that student or whoever is is acting out safe and keep them in the school, but also keep an eye on them in case they escalate and want to carry out their attack. In the case of Michigan State University, the shooter does not appear to have any connection with the school. How would a threat assessment team be able to deal with someone like that? There was research that the FBI did many years ago about school shootings, uh, targeted school shootings, and they found that only about 10% were by people that had no connection to the institution. And a good colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Gene Dysinger, who works in this space, says during his trainings, that 10% is what keeps me up at night. That is, is much more difficult to um, prevent. You know, the university, um, Christina, that I went to here in Los Angeles is wide open. Anyone can just walk on in. And a lot of the public universities around the country are are the same way. Now, some of the private universities, like, say, USC, University of Southern California, there are gates, they have security, ID checks, uh, cameras. Should all public universities at this point start locking down? One of the biggest challenges, right, of universities is maintaining that balance of being open and, and open to you know new ideas and learning. And it's hard to answer that question because every school is different, right? You really have to look at the institution and, and what's in place and what works best for them. But in general, yes, in general, we should be promoting people wearing IDs and badges. I mean, this is very normal for workplaces, for corporations, right? You cannot walk into the headquarters of a bank or any other large company. And so I think it would be very, very beneficial, especially just to have that capability, even to lock a door in our college classrooms. Yeah. I mean, what does a school lose, though? University loses if if locking down is the best solution. You said it yourself. I mean, that the whole point of a university sometimes is to promote the idea of like, this is open and accessible to everyone. But when there are gates and, and cameras, it almost goes against that feeling. We sometimes feel that gates and cameras make us feel really secure. For me, walking onto a campus that I feel like people are looking around, people will speak up if something seems suspicious. People will come to me and say, 
are you lost here? Can I help you? Putting up just a minimum ability to not be able just to openly walk into a large building or auditorium. I think it also signals that we have something to protect here, which is the people that are inside our school. But it sounds like you're saying that uh, at the very least, the feeling of being safe on campus goes beyond what we see with the eye. In other words, the gates, the locks, it goes beyond that. Uh, it, it's a, something deeper beyond what we see on a campus. I think that that true sense of safety is how invested are we as an individual? Has the school really put forth a, a plan? Are there activities around safety and security? Does every person feel connected to that institution and do, do they care enough that they will report a broken window or a lock that should be fixed. Also, every campus police department is not armed. They really vary heavily across the board. But that is one question, right? Are they armed? What type of training do they receive? Because that dictates who will come. Is it the local department? Is it the county marshal, uh, sheriff, things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's 2023. If I'm a parent touring a school with my kid, I, you know, I want to see a, a nice library. I want to see a, a great student union, but also I want to know what the security situation is. Absolutely. And I, I would I would definitely look into, I mean, there's a couple of things you can do. You can go to the website of the campus uh, public safety office where you would find out, is it a sworn uh, public law enforcement agency, meaning are they armed? What type of training do they have? They often have um, free classes or mobile app solutions, you know, for the students, for the parents. But I would look really closely at the website for the threat assessment team. Parents can reach out to the chair of the team, who is usually someone in a student affairs capacity, and just ask very broad questions. Tell me about your safety planning. Have you considered the locks, the doors, the windows, the internal threats, right? There's not one question that will that they can answer to tell us all of that. But if you start with a really light, open-ended question, based on their response, you'll have a sense of how much force, how much time, how much thought they've put into this. And I think the onus is on us as parents to be more inquisitive about those questions. That's Christina Anderson Froling, a survivor of the 2007 Virginia Tech shooting. She also started the Kushka Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping schools, businesses, and law enforcement prepare for active shooter scenarios and also to try to prevent them. Christina, thank you very much for your story. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, President Biden passed his yearly physical with flying colors. According to the White House physician, he is a healthy 80-year-old who is fit to serve as president. And second gentleman Doug Emhoff's efforts to fight anti-Semitism. It's 730. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in East Lansing say they're examining whether mental health was a factor in Monday's shooting at Michigan State University. They described the 43-year-old gunman who later took his own life as a loner who left a note. Three students were killed, five others wounded in the attack at an academic building and the student union. Some students, including Matthew Summerdyke, say they'd like to see classes resume. I think the sooner we get back, the sooner uh, things can return to normal because they're not normal right now. The campus is empty. 
Everyone's going home, as they should, but um, I'd like to see us get back. The death toll in Turkey and Syria now tops 41,000 following last week's powerful earthquake. More bodies are being found in the rubble of collapsed buildings, but so are survivors. Several were rescued today. As humanitarian aid continues arriving in the region, the U.N. says it needs another billion dollars to help survivors in Turkey. Linda Fasulo reports. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the funding would permit aid organizations to quickly scale up their efforts for a three-month period in support of government-led relief operations. The U.N.'s emergency relief coordinator, Martin Griffiths, who visited Turkey last week, stressed that people have experienced, quote, unspeakable heartache. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh will start his new job leading the NHL Players Association next month. The union's board unanimously approved his appointment yesterday. Walsh currently serves as U.S. Labor Secretary. Former Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker will soon make a similar move into the sports world. He's taking over as president of the NCAA next month. Organizers of this year's Pride Parade in Boston say they want to focus on different groups within the LGBTQ plus community. This will be the first parade since 2019. The group which organized it disbanded last year amid accusations of racism and transphobia. This year's event is being organized by the group Boston Pride for the People. Adriana Bolin is the group's president. Our trans youth in particular are under attack, and we want to support and and have them feel comfortable and connected. Um, And so we're hoping that through this pride, everyone feels empowered. We can come together and create community um, and move forward throughout this year, supporting through everything that's going on. Besides the parade on June 10th, the group is scheduling block parties, a festival and more. The list of people running for mayor of Massachusetts's third largest city is growing. There are now four people challenging Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno. Adam Frenier reports State Rep Orlando Ramos announced his candidacy yesterday. Ramos says he thought about running for mayor last time, but felt like Springfield wasn't ready for a change. But now... A lot has changed over those past four years. Uh, Mayor Sarno has made some very bad decisions that affect uh, many communities in the the city of Springfield, and uh, it's time for change. It's time for a new mayor. Ramos then criticized Sarno on the mayor's handling of the police department, which is under a consent decree with the federal government. Sarno has a large fundraising advantage over his challengers, with more than 300,000 in the bank. To that, Ramos said, Mayor Sarno may outraise me, but he will not outwork me. Ramos joins city councilors Justin Hurst and Jesse Letterman and psychotherapist David Champy in trying to knock off Sarno. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Franier. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. A great night for the Bruins in Nashville last night. They shut out the Predators 5-0. The Bees will be back home tomorrow to skate with the Islanders. Cloudy skies will probably give way to rain in the late morning or afternoon. It'll also be really windy today. Still pretty warm, though, near 60. Tonight, more showers possible and more wind. Temperatures fall to the low 20s. Tomorrow, sunny and in the upper 30s. Sunday, mostly cloudy and in the upper 40s. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. 
Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldin. President Biden remains a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old. That's according to his physician who completed Biden's annual physical. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports the doctor's findings are typical of what's found in a man of his age. Joe Biden weighs 178 pounds, has a healthy BMI, normal blood sugar levels, and exercises at least five days a week. The president takes five medications. Two are over-the-counter allergy medicines to treat seasonal allergies, and another, Pepsid, treats acid reflux, which is sometimes the cause of his throat clearing or coughing. The president also takes a blood thinner for a previously identified heart arrhythmia, and his doctor says he remains completely asymptomatic. He also takes Crestor, a statin medication to help control cholesterol. His lab work shows his lipid levels are what his doctor described as remarkably low. As with millions of older adults, being on a statin to lower cholesterol is standard prevention. Here's Dr. R. Sean Morrison, chair of geriatrics at Mount Sinai Medical System. When I'm looking at a public report of lab values, would I like my president to have their cholesterol well controlled? Yes, I'd like them to have their cholesterol well controlled. The White House physicians says President Biden's stiff gait has not worsened since last year and reassured there was no finding of any neurological conditions such as Parkinson's, though the president does have moderate to severe wear and tear osteoarthritis in his spine, which is not uncommon in 80-year-olds. There was no mention of assessment of memory or cognition in the report released by the White House physician that is typically evaluated at a physical of an 80-year-old. Mount Sinai's Dr. Morrison, who has never treated the president, says as we age, there can be normal age-related decline. As we get older, we're less able to multitask. That's normal. And our processing takes a little longer. Our reaction times are a little slower. But he says in a healthy 80-year-old, decision-making and judgment can certainly remain intact. I have patients who are performing high-level executive jobs or functions well into their 80s and 90s. And bottom line, the White House physician concludes Joe Biden remains fit for duty to fully execute his duties as president. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. In the two years since Doug Emhoff became the country's first second gentleman, the husband of Vice President Kamala Harris has leaned into fighting anti-Semitism and what he calls a worldwide epidemic of hate. I wanted to know why he chose to take on this issue, so I sat down with him near the White House to ask. And he spoke about his recent trip to the site of a former concentration camp and the responsibility of being the first Jewish person in this job. Coming into the role, I thought being the first man it would be a big the deal. People would highlight. It's pretty shocking that it took all these years to ha- finally have a woman vice president. But I really thought that would be the big deal. As it turned out, right behind it is being the first Jewish person in this role. And I really started to feel how big a deal that was with the first Passover Seder that we did virtually, 
year one of the administration. And I think tens of thousands of people tuned into that. And I cannot tell you how many people, when I was out and about traveling the country and the world, would come up to me or my, my parents would tell me how many people that affected and impacted and never, and were somewhere in tears. I never thought they'd see a Jewish person in this role. And I really then leaned into it and, and just decided to continue to live openly as I had as a Jewish person. You recently traveled to Poland and Germany, and you toured the sites of former Nazi concentration camps. You also, my understanding is, visited a home that seems like it may have been your family's old home when they were in Poland. Tell us about that trip. It was very intense, very emotional, very heavy. And I had seen, like many people have seen pictures of concentration camps. You've seen mm -hmm. the grainy photographs, the horrible images. Had you gone before? No. And until you actually step up to that gate and you see the barbed wire, the silence, the, the coldness, the... The dis you can literally see the despair and the desolation. And then you see the ovens where people were cremated. You see they've saved thousands of pairs of shoes, many of them children's shoes. So you see the shoes, you see the eyeglasses that were taken off, the human hair. It is so overwhelming to experience that and to imagine uh, what went on there. I learned just recently as Second Gentleman that my ancestors uh, came over to the United States around 120 years ago from what is now Poland, we were able to figure out uh, on this trip, you know, a pretty high degree of certainty, but the records indicate where they lived. And they were lucky. They were the ones who got out. But I also learned, unfortunately, that some of those very same relatives stayed and didn't get out and that were murdered uh, in the Holocaust, shot, in the town square. Uh, and I was able to see those names at Auschwitz. So a lot of it was just so intense. And, um, but then this is a shared experience of millions and millions of people. Uh, but I got to experience that. This is very personal. You mentioned this being a shared experience. And yet it seems like these conversations also have taken on a political dimension. And, and I mention this in part because we've seen politicians on the far right adopting neo-Nazi conspiracy theories. Uh, frankly, we've even seen the former president who's running for re-election embrace some of those ideas, you know, have dinner with a white nationalist Holocaust denier. And, you know, you are taking this greater public leadership position on the issue. Are, are you concerned at all about this effort being perceived as partisan? This is not partisan. There's no two sides to hate. There's no two sides to anti-Semitism. There's no two sides to denying the fact that the Holocaust happened. And so when so-called purported leaders, people in leadership, people who have big microphones, espouse anti-Semitic tropes, who deny that the Holocaust happened, then um, that's not partisan at all. I mean, we all must speak out, speak out, and call out when things like that happen. We're working on a national plan for anti-Semitism and combating hate, but I also want people to be proud of who they are. Like, I love being Jewish. I'm proud of being Jewish. I want everyone, however they are, just to be proud of that so they can be able to live openly, freely, safely, without fear.
You can hear more of my interview with the second gentleman on the latest episode of the NPR Politics Podcast. That's the show that I co-host uh, during my normal daytime hours. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, our series on PFAS chemicals continues. Today, how to avoid PFAS and protect your health. And in our next hour, reaction to recent Republican efforts to make the GOP's public image more diverse. We may see showers on and off today. It'll also be windy with temperatures in the upper 50s. The rain may continue early into the evening. Then it'll be cloudy and in the 20s. Saturday, clear skies in upper 30s. Sunday, mostly overcast and in the upper 40s. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Now in business news, Bay State Health says it plans to close three of its Springfield area urgent care facilities by the end of next month. They are in Longmeadow, Westfield, and Agawam. Bay State Health's CEO says staffing shortages are to blame. Mass Live reports more than 30 people are employed in those locations. The company says all will have opportunities to find new roles within Bay State Health. MIT is the best large employer in America, at least that's according to new rankings by Forbes. The Cambridge Institution has more than 15,000 employees. The findings were based on worker surveys. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. PFAS chemicals are all around us, in our air, in some lakes and streams, and in a lot of consumer products. They were invented in the 1930s, and now scientists are concerned about their impact on human health. As part of our reporting on PFAS, WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel asks experts how to keep these so-called forever chemicals out of our lives. Sixteen years ago, Nate Barber became a firefighter on Nantucket. He knew it was a dangerous job, but one risk he didn't anticipate. Firefighting gear and firefighting foams are filled with PFAS chemicals. When I was in fire academy, they told us that foam was like Dawn dish soap. Firefighters sometimes used it to wash their trucks or sprayed it on kids because it was fun. They literally used it like soap. Fast forward, and Barbara has testicular cancer. That's one of a long list of health problems tied to these chemicals. Barber can't be certain that his cancer is caused by PFAS, but he does know he has high levels in his blood. So he tried to get PFAS out of his life. He soon realized these chemicals are all over his home. They're really good at repelling water, oil, and grease. So they're in stain-resistant rugs and couches, in moisturizers and dental floss. If we had any Teflon pots and pans, we chucked them. You realize that your exposures just come from every angle. They're in our food and our water and in our air, and they get on our skin. Linda Birnbaum is the former director of the federal government's National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program. PFAS tends to be higher in people exposed through their jobs, like Barber. But she says they're a problem for everyone. 
these chemicals are in all of us, everyone, and they're everywhere. Sorry. <laughs> but that kind of makes you want to throw up your hands and say, can I do anything that's not outrageously onerous? The answer is probably not. It's tough to avoid PFAS, but she says you can cut back your exposure. A good place to start is your drinking water. Massachusetts has some of the strictest regulations for PFAS in municipal water. If you have a private well, you can get it tested and use a filter. As soon as that water is treated, then you start to see dietary items be more important. Elsie Sunderland is in her lab at Harvard, where she's a professor of environmental chemistry. She pulls out some items her lab tested that are used to prepare and store food. So there's like the nonstick pans and the compostables from the Harvard dining hall. To test the compostable bowl, her team poured liquid in and let it sit. In 15 minutes, we had higher concentrations in the solution sitting in these compostables than the highest concentrations we see at the Superfund site on the Joint Base Cape Cod. Sunderland says the good news is, after pressure, companies have started making products without PFAS. Those are now at the dining hall, and there are pots and pans labeled PFAS-free. Many experts also recommend steering clear of grease-resistant food packaging, like what you might wrap a sandwich in, and bags of microwave popcorn. They're often lined with PFAS. One thing we didn't talk about that is really important is those sprays, waterproofing sprays. Courtney Kerrigan is an epidemiologist at Michigan State University. She says those sprays you can put on your furniture contain PFAS that get into the air we breathe. Which always shocks me that they're still being sold. They don't have a warning on them. Similar coatings are also used on stain-resistant clothing, tablecloths, and shoes. And the PFAS can rub off. That is volatilizing. It's, it's evaporating into the air of your home. It's getting into the dust in your home. You're breathing it in. You're accidentally ingesting it. So her recommendation is to be wary of sprays and items labeled waterproof. Another place where PFAS can be found is in sunscreens and cosmetics. Scientists say they can be absorbed by the skin, but not as readily as from food or water. Elsie Sunderland at Harvard says if you're concerned about PFAS, maybe pick just a few favorite products to keep using. I don't think people need to freak out. I would say, you know, take those preventative measures. Um, and push for regulation. She believes the long-term solution is to get manufacturers to stop adding PFAS unless it's really necessary. For Nate Barber, he's now treating his firefighting gear carefully. Like for a 24-hour shift, you would ideally just touch it once, like throw it in the back of the truck, don't touch it all day, at the end of the day, take it out. And then every time you touch it, wash your hands. Barber says he's lucky, his cancer is curable, and his fire department has new gear. He's working with scientists to find out if it's PFAS-free. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. You can find more advice on how to reduce your exposure to PFAS at WBUR.org. And there's another hour of Morning Edition coming up later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday. Good morning, Rupa. Friday indeed. I heard something that uh, this uh, PFAS series has really impacted you. Well, yes. Yeah, so I, I have to admit, yesterday I had my left my lunch. I brought leftovers. They were in a takeout container. I went to put it in the microwave to heat it up, and I remembered the PFAS 
you know, series from and this week. you took it out. I took it out of the plastic, put it in a bowl, heated it up in the microwave. But, I mean, even, like, the texting group questions that we took from Maura Healy mm-hmm. on Wednesday had a PFAS question in it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I do think that this awareness is sort of getting into, it's like a forever chemical awareness now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Well, and it's been fascinating. Today? So, uh, variety in the show today. Uh, we will go beneath the headlines on the T. That was the other big area that people wanted to talk about when we spoke with the governor. Mm-hmm. So, we'll dive into that. We're going to look at the history of black labor pre and post Civil War in Boston. Whoa. Uh, well, it's fascinating because it, it, it resets our narrative, really, I'd... about who we are. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 at 7.51. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com slash public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Asma Khalid. College marching bands are going to take part in a huge showcase tomorrow in Montgomery, Alabama. It's the 20-year-old Honda Battle of the Bands. And Morgan State University of Maryland will make its debut and perform with five other HBCU bands. They had their final rehearsal this week, and NPR's Ben Abrams was there. The dark Baltimore sky gave way to the bright lights of Hughes Memorial Stadium and the members of Morgan State's mighty marching machine were settling into their lines on the AstroTurf. As they're chatting, a drum major stands in front of them and signals that it's time to get serious. More than 100 college kids stand silent in the crisp Valentine's night air. Then one of the directors in a blue fleece jacket comes forward and gives his commands. As the Morgan State Band runs through their show opener, a man in a gray suit wearing a black overcoat and an orange beanie walks across the field carrying a megaphone. That's Dr. Jerem Reed, Morgan State's director of bands. This practice is Reed's last chance to fine-tune the Mighty Marching Machine, or the M3, before they head down to Alabama. This milestone is also happening during Reed's first year with Morgan State. I didn't want to be a band director. I wanted to be an assistant where I I would just be able to write, um, teach and compose, arrange uh, music. But, you know, the universe had other plans. And now those plans are helping his new band make history. Hey, Morgan! My tempo. One, two, ready. 
Dr. Reed has set a high standard for Morgan State. Be the best. I mean, be the best period, not just the best HBCU band. And beyond just marching band, why not have a, a, a stellar music program? I would like to see us to be the mecca of music, be that magnificent mecca of music. Reed's excitement for Morgan State's debut on a new stage is being matched note for note by his band members. I'm not Reed Jackson. I'm 22 years old. I'm a junior, and my major is elementary education. I play trombone. Jackson says she's always felt at home playing music, but she's not taking the battle of the band's appearance for granted. It means a lot, because as a child, when I was in middle school, I always dreamt to do something like this. So like to actually be a part of it, and this is our first time actually going to Honda, it's like I'm scared and I'm fangirling at the same time. Like I'm so nervous, but I'm excited. Like, oh my gosh, like, ah. <laughs> My name is Tori James, I'm 21, I'm a junior, and I'm the head drum major of the Magnificent Marching Machine. This is James' fourth year with the program, but his path to leadership at MSU has some notes that are similar to his band leader. At first, it started off as a joke, but then as I got to grow, I really wanted the whole entire band program to be better. Everybody to step up, take accountability for everybody's actions, responsibility, leadership, integrity, honesty. I want everything to come with this band program. And I felt like me being drum major really is going to push that into a new direction. James is also ready to bring a new sound to Alabama on Saturday. I feel like Dr. Reed is trying to appeal more to this generation now. like actually write out songs that we listen to, like for example, like Gucci Man, the Tim's remix, the, you know, the five in the morning. Yeah, I actually appeal to stuff that's hot instead of, you know, like Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind and & Fire, and there's nothing wrong with that, but all the time, like you should, you know, it's gotta be a switch here and there, and I feel like Dr. Reed is definitely doing that. Morgan State is the most northern of the six HBCU bands playing in Montgomery tomorrow. Tory James wants to show the crowd what his town has to offer. A lot of people don't know about, I guess, our Baltimore culture and music, and that's what we're trying to bring down the Honda to the south because I'm pretty sure if we play a lot of songs down there, nobody's going to know. Or oh, what is this? Like the Thames joint, that's a Baltimore, the Park Heights strut, that's a Baltimore thing, and it's starting to get big, but we want to make sure people actually notice like where we come from and the type of stuff we really do. Dr. Reed is excited about the most important thing his band members will get out of competing this Saturday. Exposure. Just going down there and a lot of our students have never seen or been in that type of environment because it's going to be a different experience, a different behavior, a different sound, a different look, how they walk, how they sit, how they talk. And that alone is more valuable than anything. It's just having that experience and exposure. Experience and exposure is also what Tory James is looking for in this performance as he grows as a musician. I feel like it will help me step out of my comfort zone because I've done a lot of performances. I've been performing almost all my life, but I don't think I've ever seen or been in a performance this big or up to this caliber. Regardless of how the M3 band does on Saturday, Reed feels they have a common bond with all the musicians there. It's what makes HBCU band special. It's the B. The blackness uh, is what makes it special. Who, who we are as black people, that music, that, that grit. And when I, when I say grit, I mean 
in in the limited resources that we often have compared to other institutions but you wouldn't know it you wouldn't know it because of the talent that's why i talk about the b we just have to find a way to be great and um i think that's what make us unique and that's what i love about our schools and band members like Nairi jackson will march into the battle with a winning spirit mama we made it yeah m3 go live woo woo Ben Abrams, NPR News, Baltimore. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by BJ Lederman. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A defamation suit against Fox News has revealed that hosts had serious concerns about guests' allegations of voter fraud in the 2020 election. It's Friday, February 17th, this is Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Georgia grand jury believes that witnesses may have perjured themselves in the investigation sparked by this now infamous call by former President Trump. I just want to find uh, 11,000 780 votes. And Boston's Pride Parade will return this year under new leadership and with a goal of being more inclusive. Pride means so much to so many different people. And our aim is to create a pride that can hold all of those people. Plus, there's evidence so-called red flag laws that allow officials to remove guns from people deemed dangerous are making a difference in Colorado. Showers likely today. It'll be near 60. It's 801. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corba Coleman. President Biden is offering details on the U.S. military's recent shootdown of a Chinese spy balloon off the coast of South Carolina and three other aerial objects. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the president had been under growing pressure from Republicans and Democrats in Congress to say something. President Biden says nothing right now suggests that the three aerial objects shot down by the military last weekend are linked to China's spy balloon program. He says the structures were most likely tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions. Biden's remarks come as lawmakers continue to press the administration for greater transparency and accountability. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says his chamber is planning plenty more congressional hearings near the U.S.-Mexico border to highlight a top priority for the GOP conference. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports McCarthy made the remarks during a congressional delegation visit to southern Arizona. Yesterday's visit to southeastern Arizona marks Speaker McCarthy's first trip to the southern border since taking on his new leadership role earlier this year. He said more House Republicans will travel to the region through future hearings. I promised when we took the majority and I became speaker that no longer would people have to come to Washington to talk to their government. So we will be bringing committees here so we can listen. Not listen to Republicans, but listen to Americans 
we're having to live through this. However, Democrats have declined to take part so far, saying the border visits are no more than photo ops. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Cochise County, Arizona. In Germany, airport workers are walking out at seven airports today. As Esme Nicholson reports, thousands of flights have been canceled because of an ongoing dispute about pay. Airport terminals in Frankfurt, Munich, Dusseldorf, Hamburg, Hanover, Bremen, Dortmund and Stuttgart are empty this morning as ground and security staff go on a 24-hour strike. Unions are demanding a 10.5% wage increase to counter the effects of soaring inflation and warn that these strikes are just a taster of what could come if collective bargaining continues to stall. The industrial action is impacting some 300,000 air passengers, some of whom were due to fly into Munich this morning to attend the Munich Security Conference, where leaders from across the world are gathering to talk foreign policy. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. Vice President Harris is attending the Munich Security Conference. A top issue is expected to be Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first anniversary of the war is next week. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is opening the security conference now via video link. You're listening to NPR News. The death toll has risen again from last week's devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Well over 41,000 people have been killed. Most of the emergency work has now turned to caring for survivors. Thousands of buildings are unstable and many people are still living outdoors in wintry conditions. The UN's International Organization for Migration is seeking $84 million to help more than a million migrants in the Horn of Africa. Hundreds of thousands of people make the perilous journey through the African desert every year to travel to Yemen. Ish Mafundikwa has more. From war-torn Yemen, the mostly Somali, Ethiopian and Djibouti migrants fleeing insecurity, conflict, harsh climatic conditions, public health emergencies and other socio-economic drivers go on to other Gulf countries by land. Last year, 89 migrants died or disappeared along the so-called Eastern Route due to hazardous transportation, illness, harsh environmental conditions, drowning at sea, and violence. The money sought for the Regional Migrant Response Plan will address critical humanitarian support for the migrants their voluntary return home and reintegration into their communities. For NPR News, I am Ishma Fundikwa in Harare. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh is going to step down from his job next month. He's going to lead the National Hockey League Players Association. Walsh is the former mayor of Boston and a former labor union president. He's a big fan of the NHL's Boston Bruins. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston restaurants have outdoor dining beginning in May. They'll be able to use parking spaces and sidewalks as long as they file plans and pay a fee. But the rules outlined last night by Mayor Wu's office are different for the North End. Restaurants there can only seat people on sidewalks, and those sidewalks have to be a certain width. These exceptions aren't sitting well with some business owners. Karen Polino is part owner of the Casa Reche restaurant in the North End. She says this will hurt her business. It's, it's sad because a lot of people, their livelihoods depend on this, and um, especially for the North End. It's not just us. It's our employees. It's the wait staff. It's the kitchen staff that is really going to be hurt by this. So we're fighting for them, too. The city says these specific rules for the North End were a result of feedback from residents. 
Today is the last day on the job for the head of the Massachusetts State Police. Colonel Christopher Mason is leaving his leadership post after four years. He took over in 2019 in the middle of an overtime scandal that led to the elimination of an entire troop barracks. Governor Healy plans to name an interim leader of the police force while she begins a search for a permanent replacement. A beloved Boston children's story is getting a new life as a stage production. Make Way for Ducklings, the musical, celebrates the story by Robert McCloskey. Its world premiere is tonight at Boston University's Wheelock Family Theater. WBUR Stevie Chapman has a preview. Though it's based on a children's story, those behind the musical say people of all ages should enjoy the show. It's not your typical children's musical. It's really fun, but it's very challenging music. It's very jazzy. It's very Broadway. That's Jared Trello, the actor who plays new duck dad, Mr. Mallard. He says like the book, the musical gives plenty of nods to the city of Boston. There's just a lot of Boston inside jokes about, you know, the one-way streets and about (laughs) sports fans and how diehard they are. And I think people outside of Boston would enjoy the show, but for people in Boston, this is geared towards them. So I think Boston people are really going to get a kick out of it. Make Way for Ducklings, the musical, runs through March 12th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 808. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. The Bruins beat the Predators 5-0 last night in Nashville. The Bees will host the New York Islanders tomorrow. Showers off and on throughout the day today. There could even be a rumble of thunder. Temperatures will get into the upper 50s, mostly cloudy and dry overnight. Temperatures will fall down to the 20s. Sunny and cooler tomorrow, it'll be around 40, partly sunny on Sunday and in the upper 40s. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Asma Khalid. There is not a lot of high-level contact between Washington and Beijing these days, especially after the shootdown of that Chinese balloon earlier this month. But yesterday, President Biden said he plans to speak with Chinese leader Xi Jinping soon. And he also made clear those three other objects that were shot down in the sky did not appear to be operated by the Chinese. Well, to tell us what Beijing thinks about all of this, we are joined by NPR's John Ruich, who is in in Beijing. Uh, John, has the Chinese government said anything about this possible conversation between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping? Well, uh, yes and no. Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin was asked about this today, and he said China has no information to share on whether or not there will actually be a conversation between the leaders. Uh, So he didn't fully dismiss the idea, but he Mm -hmm. did take the opportunity to do a little finger wagging. He's saying that the U.S. can't try to get communication and dialogue going while at the same time doing things to intensify the conflict and escalate the crisis. Instead, he says Washington should work with China to manage their differences, to properly handle the situation, and to avoid misunderstanding and misjudgment. Interesting. So, John, that doesn't sound Mm. like a soft or even conciliatory tone. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. He said the balloon incident was really a test of the sincerity of the U.S. and its ability to properly manage the crisis and stabilize China-U.S. relations. So he's 
putting the blame on the U.S. for where things are at at this point. You know, I also asked him about a possible meeting between Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Wang Yi, who's mm-hmm. China's top foreign policy official. Uh, both of them will be in Munich for a security conference that starts today and runs through the weekend. He said he doesn't have any information to share about that meeting either. You know, starting to have some of these discussions would probably be a good thing for the relationship. But we just don't know if they can get there at this point. And that really tells you how tough things are in U.S.-China relations now. Right, right. So the other day, the Chinese government imposed sanctions on Lockheed Martin and a subsidiary of Raytheon. Is it safe to say that those actions taken by the Chinese government were retaliation for U.S. sanctions on companies linked to the balloon? The Ministry of Commerce announced these new sanctions on Thursday, and it did not mention the balloon episode by name when it announced these sanctions. Uh Instead, it said they were putting uh, sanctions on the companies because of arms sales to Taiwan that these two companies were allegedly involved in. They've been subject to sanctions from China a few times before, so these are largely seen as symbolic. You know, the timing will not have been a coincidence, though. As you say, these come just days after the U.S. slapped sanctions on six Chinese companies following the, the whole balloon episode. Yeah. John, we've got less than a minute left, but I wanted to ask you about the broader relations uh, between China and the United States. It did seem like there was beginning to be this uh, bit of a thaw before the balloon incident. How do you describe the relationship now, you know, both with the United States, but broader with Western countries? That's a great question. We'll see what happens with with Blinken and Wang Yi if they meet, if Xi Jinping and Biden have a discussion. That could help put a floor under the relationship. China has not rolled over on this balloon episode, you know, but from Beijing's perspective, there are still arguably pretty good reasons to seek better relations with the U.S. The biggest, according to a lot of analysts, is the economy, which is struggling in the wake of zero COVID policies that were mm-hmm. in place for three years. You know, Beijing wants to woo foreign investors back, rebuild some credibility there, and minimize the sort of potential for conflict with the West um, while it's trying to get its economy back on its feet. All right. Thanks for your reporting, John. Thank you. That's NPR's John Rowich in Beijing. Republicans are working to appeal to more voters of color. The efforts were evident during last year's midterms, and this week, a candidate that some called a leader from a new generation of Republicans, Nikki Haley, officially launched her 2024 presidential run. Our colleague, A. Martinez, asked conservative commentator Tara Sotmeyer about how Haley's bid fits into GOP efforts to present a more inclusive face. So to see Nikki Haley reemerge now as a presidential candidate feels a little hollow to me as far as the Republicans' efforts to continue diversifying, given the positions that she took and was accepting of working under the Donald Trump administration. So you consider her part of the old guard of the GOP? Correct. They're saying they want to move in a new direction, but they're resurrecting figures of the past. Her announcement speech felt very 2000 or 2004. Didn't feel as though it was representative of what the 2023 Republican Party represents because Donald Trump is still the titular head of it. So he's the elephant in the room, no pun intended, that they claim they want to move on from but are still afraid to name him, and yet he yields still so much power within the party that he cannot be ignored. You left the Republican Party in 2020. Can you tell us what prompted that decision? Absolutely. After 27 years with the Republican Party, as I saw the embrace of Trumpism overtaking the Republican Party that I initially joined, I recognized that there was no longer a place for someone like me in the party after everything that had taken place during the Trump administration. And now on top of his 
threatening our free and fair election system, questioning our constitutional order and party leadership, uh, not fully rebuking that. I decided I could no longer be a part of such an illiberal organization. If the Republican Party were to say disavow Donald Trump, would that be the last or only big obstacle to really having an effort by the Republican Party to try to diversify? It has to start there. We've seen the xenophobia, we've seen the racism, we have seen how hostile Trumpism has been to diversification in this country, to minorities, to immigrants. The idea of America first has been very exclusive. It's not inclusive. And until the Republican Party has a full repudiation of that, there's no credible attempt at saying that this is a party that is inclusive and that they're welcoming of diversity. There's a fine line between being inclusive and tokenizing minorities. Just because they put up a couple of brown faces and a, and a few women, that does not mean that the party as a whole and their policies and the behavior of people within the party is in line with being inclusive. For you, as a woman of mixed heritage yourself, when you were a Republican, how did you see yourself represented in the Republican Party? You know, for me, it was it was less about racial identity and, and more about ideology. My mom was a single parent and had me very young and taught me at a very young age to never be a victim of my circumstance. So I was attracted to the Republican Party's idea of individual empowerment, of less government intervention, of providing the ladders of success, the opportunity. My goals of becoming uh, involved in Republican politics were to take those conservative principles and bring them to communities that would not necessarily be open to listening to those policies because they were so used to certain types of messengers and it coming from the same people. And I represented something different. You know, the United States is uh, projected to be majority non-white by 2045. So how critical, Tara, would you say, is outreach to the GOP survival to voters of color? It's absolutely critical to the health of the party. And their most active demographics are dying off. They're older voters over 65. They have to course correct in some ways to attract different demographics into the party or else it will wither on the vine. It's counterintuitive to what they're embracing, though. You have a party that is embracing ideologies and, and embracing policies that are existential threats to our democracy. Until the Republican Party stops that, they really do not have a credible chance of expanding the party and being healthy party once again uh, in this two-party system. That's political commentator Tara Setmayer. Tara, thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. For two chefs in Detroit, music is a passion they can literally taste. Every month, Germain Booz and Amber Beckham put together a three-hour, five-course dinner inspired by a specific album. We try to pay homage to whatever artists that we're doing. So that could be from like their backgrounds, their favorite foods, or even like what lyrics they say in the songs. 
Their creation is called Vinyl Tastings, and it pairs each dish with wine and a song. Take the Notorious B.I.G. and his 1994 hit, Big Papa. So, boom, right? Like, he tells you a whole meal right there. It's like, all right, let's, let's do something a little bit elevated with it. Let's play with it. Chef Boo says that line inspired him to create a black garlic rub for a strip steak with a Japanese omelet and smoked grape reduction. This Sunday, their muse is Detroit native Jay Dilla and the late artist's 2006 album Donuts. Dilla was a hip-hop producer who famously sampled old songs and turned them into new beats. The first dish on the menu is based on this track, Gobstopper, which started with crispy chicken wing-inspired Brussels sprouts, something meant to remind you of the club. Gobstopper was like one of the songs that was like set the club on fire, right? And like I listened to the actual sample that he created the song from, and I realized that Dilla had took that 40 seconds and he used the first 20 seconds to make one song, he used another 20 seconds to make another song, and another 20 seconds to make another song. So we're gonna do the Brussels sprout wings, but like Dilla, I'm going to chop up the Brussels sprouts to find different ways to use them inside the same dish. The menu also includes dishes inspired by Coney Dogs, a Detroit staple, and of course, donuts for dessert. This month's dinner comes as part of Detroit's annual Dilla Day, a festival that honors the artist who died in 2006 of complications from lupus. It's a big deal for Chef Booz, who says he moved to Detroit for the hip-hop scene, and Jay Dilla had a huge influence. He had his own unique rhythm that he would add to it. And it was very jazzy, funky, melodic. This particular dinner is a full circle moment for me. As for next month, well, the chefs have gotten a lot of requests for Beyonce, but Eric Badu is next on the menu. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a Georgia grand jury investigation into possible election interference by former President Trump has found that witnesses may have lied. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, I don't know about you, but I need funny to help me get through hard times. And it's been an unfunny week. From toxic spills to spies in the skies. And let's be honest, it's been unfunny for a while. Our two resident comedians help us figure out how to grapple with what's real and still find a way to laugh. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy and windy today with a high near 60 and a chance of rain. It's 53 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. 
and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning, I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldin. Prosecutors in Georgia could soon decide to seek indictments stemming from efforts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election there. A special grand jury finished its investigation in December, and now some of its final report has been made public. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler has more on what is and is not included in those documents. It's been more than two years since this infamous call between then-President Donald Trump and Georgia Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger about the 2020 election. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. And it's been a few weeks since an Atlanta-based special grand jury wrapped up its investigation into that call and other election interference with a final report on its findings. Now, some of that report is public. But a judge is holding back some of it, for now, that names potential crimes and specific people that might have committed them. He has to balance the due process rights of people who didn't have an opportunity to be heard but might be uh, accused of something. That's Anthony Kreis, a constitutional law professor at Georgia State University. This special grand jury can't issue indictments, so Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will have to do that herself. Most of the recommendations from the jury will be under wraps until then. But Kreis says there are two new pieces of information that were made public that could shine a light on what comes next. One, the special grand jury believes at least one witness lied under oath when testifying. And two... I think the most important takeaway that's useful to everybody is that the jurors unanimously came to the conclusion that there were no irregularities or widespread instances of fraud which would call into question the outcome of the 2020 election. Even though the special grand jury's investigation is complete, the district attorney's office may take its time before bringing indictments, especially if they go beyond the scope of the redacted report. There may be T's to cross and I's to dot even though the special purpose grand jury's work is now done. And I think that the thing of the, the timing is that people who want something you know, immediate are going to be very disappointed. One person who's not disappointed is Donald Trump, who thanked the grand jury on a social media site and claimed, quote, total exoneration. Despite no evidence yet, that's the case. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. It's Friday, and that's when we hear from StoryCorps. Today, a story about driving. Let's face it, some people are not meant to drive. For Danny Bell, those people included his wife, Maritza. He recently came to StoryCorps with his daughter, Sidia, to talk about the time when mom lost the car. I used to take your mother for driving practice. Because mm-hmm. she did not know how to drive. And <laughs> I remember one day, we was in this park, and your mother had said to me, I'm nervous. Y'all get out the car. What car was this? Oh, that was my Black Maximum. Talk about it. Oh, man. <laughs> that was like my love child. Hello. Was it paid off, too? It was paid off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So she's driving. And to my recollection, she was doing a really good job. She was. Until I told her, I want you to park the car. I stood in front of the car to guide her. 
And I kept pulling my hands towards me. I said, come on, come on. And for some reason, she stepped on the gas and the car flew. I had to jump out of the way. Mm-hmm. And the car went over the embankment mm-hmm. into the water, flipped upside down. And me and you and the dog. The dog. <laughs> Roxana. Yeah. <laughs> Looking down. I could not believe this what happened. What just happened? Mm-hmm. I ran down the hill. I went into the water and I couldn't see nothing. Mm-hmm. But I knew she was in there. And I remember these two women came up and they called 911 and stuff. Do you remember that? I remember the mm-hmm. ambulance and the police. And I want to say even a helicopter. Yeah. Their feeling was, it's too late. Mm-hmm. She's gone. Mm-hmm. Until I pushed her up to the top of the car, they thought she was dead. I'm left with this memory of my dad coming out of the water, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. literally holding my mom and saving her against all odds. Mm -hmm. That moment was love embodied to me. But what I also remember is you going, oh, I saved her. But Lord, my car. (laughs) My car. (laughs) I had just shined my car up. It was it was beautiful. And she said, I ain't never going to touch a car again until this day. She just sits in the passenger seat and complain about, turn over there, slow down. Truth, yeah. truth, truth. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> That's a Bell family story. Yes, it is. That's Danny and Sadia Bell in Atlanta, Georgia. Their interview will be archived at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, you can hear the story of building inspectors in Turkey's earthquake zone. They're facing massive challenges as they figure out who can and cannot return to their homes. In this kind of buildings, if one column or some of the columns uh, are damaged like this, the loads are transferred to the other columns. Uh, Now they are overstressed. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on the good old radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Nicaragua's President Daniel Ortega has moved to strip his political opponents of their citizenship. And red flag laws allow officials to take guns away from people deemed dangerous. Critics say that's a violation of the Second Amendment, but others are pointing to Colorado as proof that red flag laws work. It's 830. 
Coming to City Space on February 21st, former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter discusses his work to increase awareness about the media and its impact on democracy. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There's a court hearing today in Tennessee for five former Memphis police officers charged in the death of black motorist Tyree Nichols. As NPR's Kristen Wright reports, the charges stem from a traffic stop during which video shows Nichols was tased and beaten. The former officers are charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault and kidnapping, and misconduct. The five men have been out on bond. Police body cam and street camera videos showed officers brutally beating Tyree Nichols and first responders not helping the young black man who died in a hospital three days after the traffic stop. The images and videos set off outrage and yet another national conversation on police brutality and race. The officers in court today were part of the Memphis Police Department's crime suppression team known as the Scorpion Unit now disbanded. Kristen Wright, NPR News. Police say they're investigating whether mental health played a role in Monday night's deadly shooting at Michigan State University. Authorities describe the 43-year-old gunman who later took his own life as a loner who left a note. Three students were killed, five others wounded in the attack at an academic building and the student union. Snow and ice are in the forecast today for northern New England, including Maine and New Hampshire. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. PFAS chemicals, the so-called forever chemicals, are associated with a number of serious health concerns, but they're still used in a lot of household products. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel spoke with experts about what they do to avoid these chemicals. One of the biggest ways PFAS gets into the body is by eating or drinking it. In Massachusetts, municipal water is regulated for PFAS. But if you're on well water, you are responsible for testing and filtering. When it comes to food, experts say to avoid things like nonstick pots and pans and microwave popcorn. They can contain PFAS. Elsie Sunderland of Harvard tested a compostable bowl by putting liquid in it and letting it sit. In 15 minutes, we had higher concentrations in the solution sitting in these compostables than the highest concentrations we see at the Superfund site, like the Joint Base Cape Cod. The good news, she says, is companies now make PFAS-free products. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Governor Healy is tapping State Representative John Santiago as the first-ever Secretary of the Executive Office of Veterans of Services. That job was just elevated to a cabinet-level position. Santiago is a member of the U.S. Army Reserve and an emergency medicine physician. He also briefly ran for mayor of Boston in 2021. Santiago will be the first Latino member appointed to Healy's cabinet. There's mixed news when it comes to the latest data on COVID in Massachusetts. State health officials report both the number of people reporting a positive test and the number being hospitalized continue to drop. But the amount of COVID found in Boston's wastewater is on the rise. It's up 35 percent in the last two weeks. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. 
Five different Bruins scored last night in the team's 5-0 win over the Predators. Goalie Jeremy Swayman stopped all 28 shots he faced. The Bruins will return home tomorrow to skate with the Islanders. Cloudy skies will probably give way to rain in the late morning or afternoon. It'll also be really windy. Still pretty warm, though, near 60. Tonight, more showers possible and more wind. Temperatures fall to the low 20s. Tomorrow, sunny and in the upper 30s. Sunday, mostly cloudy and in the upper 40s. It's 54 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Turn Every Page, a new film by Lizzie Gottlieb about the 50-year relationship between writer Robert Caro and his editor Robert Gottlieb, now playing in theaters. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldil. In Nicaragua, the government of President Daniel Ortega is ramping up its attacks on political dissidents. Last week, Nicaragua banished 222 political prisoners. The country took away their citizenship, put them on a plane, and sent them to Washington, D.C. This week, it is continuing those attacks, stripping nearly 100 more dissidents of their citizenship. NPR's Ader Peralta is following this story from his base in Mexico City. Good morning, Ader. Good morning, Leila. So before we get into the stripping of citizenships, Mm -hmm. let's go back. If you could just give us a sense of what's led to this point. Yeah, so uh, President Daniel Ortega is a former guerrilla fighter. He helped topple a dictatorship in the 70s. He's been president twice. And in 2018, there was this huge popular rebellion against him. And that's when things changed dramatically in Nicaragua. Ortega used violence to quash that pro-democracy movement. And then he consolidated power. He and his wife, Vice President Rosario Murillo, now control all three branches of government. And Mm. these past two weeks, they've been flexing that muscle. Um, Without a public trial, the government has branded many dissidents as traitors. On Wednesday, a judge said that 94 Nicaraguans, and these include human rights activists, writers, journalists, um, had been sentenced to what amounts to a civic death. A a judge said that they had been stripped of their nationality. They said the government was taking over their possessions and that these people would no longer have any rights in Nicaragua for the rest of their lives. How common is it to denationalize citizens? Uh, You know, I I spoke to Gabriel Chin, and he studies nationality at UC Davis, and he says that this um, became a thing after the First World War. And um, what the world realized is that leaving someone stateless was terrible. So the right to nationality was accepted as a universal human right. Um, He says what the Ortega regime has done is a, quote, clear violation of international human rights law. And he pointed to a case in the United States that shows how serious this situation is. Um, After the First World War, a U.S. soldier was stripped of his nationality for deserting the military in the battlefield. But the Supreme Court actually ruled that this was cruel and unusual punishment. Let's listen. The army could have sentenced him to death. They could have executed him. But it's cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment to have denied him any nationality whatsoever. And that's because the Supreme Court recognized the terrible consequences of being stateless. 
And being stateless, let's be clear, means that you lose your right to have rights. Um, at the time, the majority in the Supreme Court wrote that denationalization was, quote, a form of punishment more primitive than torture. So what are some of the banished saying? I'm hearing a lot of defiance, um, but also uncertainty, and it's not clear yet what's going to happen to dissident Nicaraguans who remain in the country. Nicaragua is a country that defines itself through its poets. They're national heroes there, and now this government has banished two literary giants, Sergio Ramirez and Yoconda Belli. And Belli is a poet, and she didn't release a statement. Instead, um, she pointed to one of her poems, and I'll translate a stanza for you. She writes, Y te amo, patria de mis sueños y mis penas, and I love you, country of my dreams and my sorrows, and I'll take you with me to wash away your stains in secret. I'll whisper with hope and promise you cures and spells that will save you. The name of that poem is Nicaragua. Ader Peralta in Mexico City. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leila. A proposed law in Michigan to keep guns away from dangerous people is gaining attention again this week after the mass shooting at Michigan State University. Three years ago, Colorado enacted a red flag law. Enforcement is spotty, but one family says it prevented a tragedy. Colorado Public Radio's Andrew Kinney reports. John Bulware's antique shop in Denver is crowded with early American history, from Revolutionary War drums, ready to, for somebody to restring it and enjoy it, to 18th century American tea kettles. And they're very hard to find because it was cheaper to import them from England and Scandinavia. John's built a reputation in Denver for more than 40 years. His late brother, Richard, was also a prominent figure in the city as a photographer and an airport executive. Richard was the eldest of four brothers, and John was the youngest. I'm the baby of the family. But over the years, the two men became estranged. In fact, we didn't talk for 15 years. He was getting older and was very hard to deal with. As Richard reached his 80s, John started to hear disturbing things. Richard was stockpiling guns and food. He feared mob rule. He was a doomsday prepper. John saw the situation firsthand after Richard got injured and John started helping him get around. Things weren't normal, at least what I call normal. At Richard's townhome, John found a night vision scope aimed at the door, some 5,000 rounds of heavy-duty ammunition, and rifles and pistols all around the place. Richard pointed a loaded pistol at John as he tried to show it off. I said, don't aim that thing at me when you're trying to get a round out of it. The family grew concerned that Richard was delusional and that he could shoot a delivery person. Or me or anybody else. Richard's brothers were able to force him into a mental health facility. John took the guns to his place, but when Richard got out, he told the cops the weapons had been stolen. He charged me, called him up, and uh, charged me with felony theft. A recording of Richard surrendering the guns was enough to prove John's innocence. But the cops went further to ensure Richard couldn't rearm himself. They brought in Colorado's three-year-old red flag law, which allows judges to ban people from having guns if they're deemed a danger to themselves or others. Denver Police Division Chief Joe Montoya when the legislation was passed, the department's decision was to fully embrace it. We reviewed more than 300 red flag cases across Colorado and found that Denver has filed far more than any other agency in the state, about 90 over the law's first three years in existence. 
Montoya says the department's dedicated red flag team gives them a new option to deal with dangerous situations that could otherwise go unaddressed. Sometimes you just have that little nervous feeling in your stomach that this could end up bad down the road. We're going to be reading about this person, you know. And now knowing that at least you have the ability to take some sort of action that could hopefully prevent something from happening, I think it's a good thing. In the Bullwares case, a detective filed a detailed petition in court. Richard was appointed an attorney to represent him while the city built its case. Soon, a judge held a hearing and banned Richard from possessing or buying guns for a year. Another brother, Tad Bullware, attended by phone. <sighs> relief, total relief. Could not have been happier. Just a couple months later, last February, Richard Bullware died of natural causes, alone but unarmed. After everything that happened, John and Tad still honor him as their eldest brother. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Kenny. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from the president of Boston Pride for the People, the group that plans to bring Boston's Pride Parade back with an emphasis on inclusion. We may see showers on and off today. It'll also be windy with temperatures in the upper 50s. The rain may continue early into the evening. Then it'll be cloudy and in the 20s. Saturday, clear skies in upper 30s. Sunday, mostly overcast and in the upper 40s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. Now in business news, a plan to transform a long vacant warehouse in Alston is moving forward. Yesterday, the Boston Planning and Development Agency approved the proposal for the site along the Mass Pike across from Boston Landing. Plans for the three-building development will include labs and apartments, as well as restaurant and retail space. About 40 percent of the site will be dedicated to green space, which will include planting 100 new trees. Wellesley-based Chalaris Therapeutics says it's laying off about one-third of its staff for about 44 people. The move comes as the biotech says it's discontinuing two of its drug programs meant to help transplant patients. Instead, Chalaris says it will focus on a drug meant to treat a rare autoimmune disease. A new report finds an offshore wind project off the coast of Cape Cod is already having a bigger impact than projected. The State Department of Energy Resources says the Vineyard Wind Project has created more than double the full-time jobs expected. The report does note that a delay in federal permitting extended the project's development phase by nearly two years. It's 845. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston's Pride Parade is making a comeback. The group that used to plan Boston's Pride Month dissolved in 2021 amid boycotts and accusations of racism and transphobia. A different organization called Boston Pride for the People is promising more inclusion in its celebrations this June. Adriana Bolin is the group's president. She joins us now. Good morning. 
Good morning. So this will be the first Pride Parade in the city in four years. What does it mean to you to get to help bring it back? It's so important to me. Pride means so much to so many different people. And our aim is to create a pride that can hold all of those people so that people can see themselves and feel themselves and connect to themselves, their family and others in pride. Now, obviously, Boston Pride, the group that used to organize the celebrations, was criticized by people of color and trans people for a lack of inclusion. How is your organization working to ensure that things will be different? We're celebrating the rich, diverse, and creative culture that we all bring. LGBTQ people are not monoliths. And so we're centering, advancing racial equity throughout everything that we do and embracing all of our intersections. We're educating people and advocating about the oppression that we experience so that everyone's aware of the forms of oppression and ways in which our identities are marginalized. We're empowering people so that they feel respected and we're commemorating um, our experiences and our history and connecting how that relates back to the work that we're doing together now. When you talk about reimagining pride, what does that look like, especially at a moment where queer and trans rights are under scrutiny in legislatures across the nation? Showing up. It means showing up for everyone. It means bringing everyone to the table to help understand what pride is imagined in their minds and allowing us to come together and bring that forth and support one another through a time where we are under a lot, we're under attack. Our community is under attack, especially our youth. And we want to make sure that we're creating space for them to feel safe and supported and understood. There are a lot of people with different visions for what pride should be. How are you taking feedback and trying to represent all those opinions. We have a call out for volunteers and we would love folks to join all of our committees. We have a committee dedicated to our festival, our parade, specifically for QT BIPOC programming, which is queer and trans, black, indigenous, and people of color. We we really want people to engage in different committees. We have an accessibility committee and our aim is to have people all over contribute to this so that we have a clear understanding of what everyone needs in these areas. So the best way to show up and support in building this reimagined inclusive pride is by volunteering. It's going to take everyone. At last year's pop-up celebrations, there seemed to be a focus on queer families and youth. Why was that important? And what are you going to focus on this year? It's important because Pride, the parade and festival not being active was really hard for um, families who are looking to connect with adopted youth and youth who are looking for support from mentors and chosen families that they might not have in their birth families. And we're trying to re-engage that this year. We have two areas Our common area is going to be um, focused on youth and families, and we're really excited about everyone being able to have a space available to them. And I look forward to us having various spaces where people can feel comfortable in those areas. So we're obviously coming back after some friction. Why is it important to have harmonious, united pride in Boston for Boston's communities this year? It has been such a ride the past couple years, um, and a term that's on my mind a lot is healing and support. Everyone really needs love and support, and the Pride Parade 
coming back is a space where that can really happen. It's been hard. It's hard for people right now and some of the experiences they're having. And I think the best thing that we can do is come together and see each other in our unique, complex diversities and understand how we can work together and support each other. Adriana Bolin is the president of Boston Pride for the People. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report breaks down the current job market. The tech sector is laying people off, but lots of other companies are still hiring. Coming up at noon today, it's Here and Now, and Jane Clayson is here to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Jane. Hi, Rupa. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. We are following, first off today, that $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. Some remarkable new disclosures about what Fox News hosts and management knew and what they were saying about the 2020 election in front of the camera and then the very different messages behind the scenes. So we'll look at that. Also, the Tesla recall has drivers thinking about safety on the roads, whether you drive one or not. What does the recall mean for drivers? It's our Friday political roundtable today, so we're looking closely at the news from Georgia, the special grand jury there, Nikki Haley running for the Republican nomination, and California Senator Dianne Feinstein stepping aside, among other things. NASCAR turns NASCAR turns 75. Uh, this year, we'll take a ride through history and look to the future with them. And Rio de Janeiro, uh, its world-famous carnival gets underway this weekend. We'll hear from pensioners brushing off their sequins and spandex Rupa, and rehearsing their dance steps. It's quite a story. The spirit of Carnival affects young and old alike. A little fun for our Friday today. That sounds really fun. Thank you, Jane. You bet. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 851. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety. CBTeam.org. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five, and liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We hear about a lot of layoffs, but hiring's actually pretty good. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, a commercial real estate leader whose local experts bring global expertise to solve today's complex challenges. Learn more at JLL.com. JLL, see a brighter way. And by BuySide from the Wall Street Journal, an independent commerce site designed to help consumers make smart decisions with their time and money. WSJ.com slash BuySide. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. The job market here in February is a bit of a puzzle. We've heard about job cuts in tech. DocuSign is the latest. It's laying off around 10% of its workforce. But at the same time, there was this super strong employment report we got a couple weeks ago, and plenty of companies say they are hiring. Asset manager Fidelity says it's planning to hire 4,000 new workers in the first half of this year. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab explains what is going on. The unemployment rate is at its lowest in more than 50 years, and job growth has been widespread, especially in leisure, professional and business services, and hospitality and healthcare. So why can it feel like layoffs are happening all around us? 
Elise Gould, an economist at the Economic Policy Institute, says because the Fed is raising interest rates, we're all keeping our eyes peeled for signs of a recession. So we're being extra sensitive to layoff announcements from big companies. I think that weighs on people and people may think that their job is less secure than it than it actually is. That could lead to different kinds of behavior in terms of whether or not they feel like they have the leverage to ask for a raise. In reality, the layoffs are pretty isolated to tech, an industry that saw incredible demand during the pandemic that just wasn't sustainable. Now it's readjusting to the new normal. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. 2023 is a farm bill year. The current version of that massive agriculture and nutrition spending package expires in October, so lawmakers have to hammer out an update. There will be a flashpoint. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, a.k.a. Food Stamps. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has more. At a hearing this week, Republican lawmakers took aim at the overall size of the SNAP budget, which grew during the pandemic, in part because of temporarily expanded benefits, which expire at the end of this month. That will be a jolt to the 41 million Americans who rely on SNAP and who are paying around 11 percent more for groceries than this time last year, according to Tuesday's CPI report. Vincent Smith is with the American Enterprise Institute. The extra spending that was associated with pandemic initiatives is not likely to be renewed. That's going to be a very heavy lift. He says work requirements for SNAP recipients will be another point of contention. Right now, enforcement of those rules varies from state to state. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down three-tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures also down in the four-tenths to eight-tenths percent range, with the Dow future down 142 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 3.891%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed with people in mind to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. One area of our economy that has not recovered from the pandemic has been the department store. Employment at department stores is still 12% below pre-pandemic levels. So we wanted to check in with one. Dunham's Department Store in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, has been a family business for more than a century. Ann Dunham Rawson is vice president of sales and merchandising and joins us. Hi, Ann. Hi, how are you? Good. So tell us about your store. How did Dunham's get its start? Well, Dunham's was started as a grocery store by my great-grandparents in 1905, and they grew that business through the teens and 20s. They had a traveling store, so they would take merchandise out into the farming community who maybe weren't able to get into town on a regular basis. And then in the 20s during the Depression, my great-grandparents decided that they didn't have enough to do, so they built what we now refer to as our department store building. Now, you know, department stores have, in general, lost some sales to online shopping over the past few years. There are 31,000 fewer workers at department stores now than a year ago. How's Dunham's doing coming out of the pandemic? 
Uh, well, we're still very strong. We fortunately have a very strong community of locals who have supported us for our 118 years and continue to support us. But we also, we have a lot of people who live, you know, Philadelphia, DC, the New York metro area that have homes up here and cottages. So we are a tourism, but also we have a very strong local-based economy. Supply chains, getting the goods that you need, that was a, a big challenge for all kinds of stores uh, in the past few years. Has that improved for you? It is improving. I will say there are still areas that are difficult. Shoes, especially because there's so much that's imported. It all comes from the same region. And so they're still having issues. Although a lot of the shoe manufacturers are overcoming that and are switching gears. You're seeing things made in other places and other parts of the world, but still factories aren't as easily changed as, you know, apparel factories and, and some of those things. This year is, economically speaking, so hard to predict between inflation, between a recession that may or may not happen. It's anyone's guess. But you have to make guesses because you're ordering supplies, what, a year in advance sometimes? What's your take on how this year is going to go and how are you predicting that? I'm cautiously optimistic. My father used to say, you know, there are no bad years, just some years are better than others. So we're just sort of going with that. There's always challenges. You can't prepare for the worst because the only thing worse than being overstocked is being understocked. So, you know, you hope that you make the right decisions and be a little cautious in certain areas, but cautiously optimistic. I always say we've been through two pandemics and survived. We've had a fire. We've survived a lot. We've been through a depression, a recession. My father always used to say, we just don't know when to stop. So we just keep going. <laughs> Ann Dunham Rawson is vice president of merchandising and sales at Dunham's department store in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, established 1905. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Yes. Thank you very much. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Windy, overcast, and near 60 today with a good chance of showers. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits. Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, I don't know about you, but I need funny to help me get through hard times. And it's been an unfunny week, from toxic spills to spies in the skies. And let's be honest, it's been unfunny for a while. Our two resident comedians help us figure out how to grapple with what's real and still find a way to laugh. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.